We've travelled from the south of India to the north of India and back again and across the Indian Ocean to Australia. What have we learnt about what inspires and makes possible these grounded imaginaries? And what can we learn about what gets in their way? How are communities keeping hope alive in the face of national and global systems that block transformation at every turn? And finally, how can you become involved in creating grounded imaginaries locally and nurturing them globally? At the beginning of episode 5, when we were visiting Ladakh, you might remember Lobjung describing how the glaciers of his home state nourish the people and ecosystems of India and beyond. This is the source of all life for me. 40 to 50 million years ago, when India drifted apart from the Gondwana land and crashed into Asia, forming these mountain systems and creating the habitat for these glaciers to form, you know. And from there downwards, life trickled down and civilizations came along these rivers. Today, as people and ecological communities all over the planet experience the impacts of climate change, the metaphor of the supercontinent, Gondwana land, has particular resonance. It came into existence about 500 million years ago and began to break apart about 120 million years ago, eventually reforming as the separate land masses that today we call India, Africa, South America, Madagascar, Antarctica and Australia. Ironically, perhaps, in this era of fossil fuel-driven climate change, the most palpable evidence of the former unity of these very separate parts of the planet and vastly diverse cultural worlds is the presence of coal deposits formed from the long dead tropical forests that once covered much of the supercontinent. Indeed, in the age of carbon-fueled economies and global trade, mining and then burning Gondwana coal has become a critical part of the national economies of those nations. If we take the two nations that were the focus of this series, India and Australia, the trade in coal forms a key economic plank of their relationship. But coal, including the coal dug up in Australia and burned in India, is also, we know, the source of the intensifying climate catastrophes humans, other animals and ecologies across the entire planet are grappling with. And as we have seen in the vociferous protests against the mine that the Indian mining magnate Adani has financed in the north of Australia, today it is communities and not continents that are being torn apart. This tale of the dynamic and often fraught relationship between the local and the planetary, the past and the present, 
is one of the threads that has woven through the stories we've been telling in this podcast. In each place we visited, we started with very local and unique stories. Stories unfolding in Auroville in India's south, in Uttarakhand in the north, in Maruya in Australia's southeast, in Ladakh, high in the Himalayas, and in Perambakam near Chennai in the Bay of Bengal. Each episode depicted the challenges the people who live in those places are facing and their quite specific locally driven efforts to self-organise. The people of those communities shared how they are confronting, rather than denying, the realities of climate change, forging pathways for people to live as well and as justly as possible, even as the worlds on which they have depended for so long are unravelling. That dimension of this story is one from which we can all take inspiration. These communities are exemplars of the fourth imaginary I spoke about in the first episode. Theirs is not an imaginary of denial, nor of technological or theological fixes that will rain down from some magical place elsewhere or above, nor do they see themselves heading inexorably towards the apocalypse. Despite these communities already experiencing how ecological degradation and climate change is undermining their life support systems, in the face of this knowledge, they are working out how to act collectively and creatively. And in that action, they are creating new imaginaries. And yet, in each case, their local collective actions and the imaginaries they're fostering are unfolding against a background of political, economic and social systems that often stymie their efforts and suffocate their imaginaries. These systems are extremely influential on their social and ecological worlds, but they're largely beyond their reach. In Auroville, Deepika described how she and Bernard had worked with extraordinary patience and care to help recreate forests where the ancient soils had entirely eroded and only pebbles remained. Remember how she described starting with very specific plants that could take root there and build soil, beginning a cycle where biomass was created and creatures followed until native forests once again flourished. The uh, forestation work of Oroville, it is really unique because it's 50 years old and it is follows an ecosystem approach. It's not just replanting. For many other people, they, they make a list of trees and plant those trees. But here we are recreating the entire ecosystem. This might seem like a small story, but Deepika and Bernard and their forests form part of the Oroville community whose lives are dedicated to creating a place on earth where people of all backgrounds 
and all earth beings can live in harmony. And yet, even as they are creating and nurturing a web of inner and outer transformation, their efforts to restore the human communities and forests that have been decimated by overdevelopment take place under the shadow of the perennial drive to ramp up that very development. Their work can't be immunised against the logics of a state and international order still addicted to growth, expansion and extraction. Travelling north to Uttarakhand, Malakia Viridi described her journey from the city to an extraordinary living landscape. She spoke of her realisation that the way people and nature connect is at the heart of civilization. For her, that realisation led to an appreciation of the people of that place and an understanding that it was here she needed to place her energy. So she co-founded the women's collective, Mati Sangtan, which is today leading transformations in farming practices, attentive to the health of the land and the local people. She described the shift they are creating from a dogma that insists that the purpose of growing is to produce products for a market beyond the community, to a view that prioritises the nutritional needs of the people who live there and the health of the land. And this shift forms part of a larger transformation from a way of living where earth, food and water are treated as resource to one where they are held as life. Where caring for humans also means caring for soils and seed, for animals and water, as part of a vision of planetary health and well-being. And yet again, Malachi and her community can't afford a parochial vision. They can't ignore the forces invading their worlds, pushing them into a market economy. And they see how counterproductive many of the dominant solutions have been. For example, the government's solution so far has been to ship in food to these communities to alleviate rising poverty. And yet, this is having the ironic effect of alienating people from the very practices that they will need now and in the future to sustain their lives. Flying across the ocean to Maruya, Fraser spoke about how folks in their small town in southeastern Australia are not only learning how to grow food at small and local scales, but also learning how to grow organic community, where land alienated people can once again connect with the earth from which the food is grown and with the people who grow it. Catherine described how people from all walks of life are learning that they can co-create healthy food cultures, healthy soils and vibrant eco-cultural systems at a local level. Their community's attention to ecological and social justice has meant that owning property need not be a condition for growing food, nor need people be closed out of feeding themselves and their families with healthy, fresh fruit and vegetables just because they can't afford to go to fancy whole food stores. Even in the face of the catastrophic fires and floods of the last three years, 
the networks of support and care they have nurtured have allowed them to sustain their commitment to action. Yet the folks of Maruya know they are operating against the background of big ag supported by dominant economic and political systems. And although these systems of food production are dependent on fossil fuel and are depleting the earth, they enjoy a type of resilience, one not built from community fabric, but from mega size and shareholder value. With the likelihood of fires and floods threatening the embryonic growth of these local food systems, it is clear that government support and collaboration will be critical for these alternative food systems to survive and even thrive. Coming back to Ladakh, where I began this episode, Lobjong spoke about building ice stupas as a way of providing water for remote villages, where people's lives and livelihoods have, for all living memory, been dependent on the slow spring melt of glaciers, now rapidly disappearing in a heating climate. He described his success in using solar pumping to lift water from nearby springs to Pishu village and how this success has become the foundation for efforts to take similar actions in 23 other villages. Although still young himself, he also recognises how the traditional and increasingly abandoned understandings of water as sacred would support people in the area. He sees that it is this view, not the modernist fantasy of control, that will help them embrace the types of practices needed to ensure a future in these remote places. And yes, he knows that this is a band-aid solution and that the threats these villagers face are imminent, but he has also witnessed how much can change when a network of trust and commitment is built. And yet again, the sobering appearance of blackened, dirty glacial ice, carrying the marks of carbon burning across parts of the world that are ironically dependent on the water flows from this place, illustrates the existential gravity of Ladakh's situation. Finally, Mahalakshmi, a resident of Perambakam, described how young people are building networks of self-representation for a community otherwise completely at the behest of a state, insensitive to the compounding effects of flooding, poverty and hopelessly inadequate infrastructure. Seemingly moved for their own improvement from urban slums, they were in fact expunged from the urban fringes to a resettlement site far removed from the places where they might work and learn. But despite this, the residents are finding ways of speaking back to government about what it actually means to experience the worst impacts of climate change. Theirs is a particularly poignant and powerful story because against a background of marginalisation and abuse, people in that community have not only self-organised to change their circumstances, but are creating the conditions for leadership and voice to grow amongst its youth. Where people felt hopeless and alienated, they are now getting involved and wanting to act collectively. And yet, massive forces beyond them, rapid urbanisation, destructive land use patterns 
and the eradication of critical bioscapes are exacerbating the floods that fill their homes and contaminate their water. They live in a physical geography critically endangered by climate change and in a social geography that exacerbates their vulnerability at every turn. When I listen to these stories, I find myself in a complicated place. The courage these people are showing, even as they come face to face with the decimation of their worlds, is astonishing. They are bringing commitment to each other and to the places they call home. They're bringing creativity and practical wisdom to the shared challenge of building alternative forms of life that might sustain them and might sustain the earth. In every instance, they have an astute appreciation that more of the same, more development, more sophisticated technology, more extraction, more marketization is not going to bring them into a safe future. In every case, they are in touch in very immediate ways with the impacts of climate change on their ecological life support systems. In every case, they appreciate that what they need to do is turn back with care, with respect, with reverence, to give their support to those ecological life support systems. Again, as Malika said, they are remembering that earth, water, and other earth beings are life, not resource. But we cannot get away from the harsh truth that their realism, courage, and care set against backgrounds of economic, social and political systems that remain addicted to extraction and development. Systems that have no respect for the particularity or fragility of place, but see only the efficiency and profitability of mega markets. We have to hold those two realities at the same time. Coming to the end of this series then, we want to be clear about what we are and what we are not saying. We don't want to try and convince you that if you grow local veggies or restore a forest or build a community organisation, the future's going to be rosy. That would be lying to ourselves and it would be lying to you. Nor are we arguing against technological innovation as part of the solution to climate and ecological crises. Without doubt, given how much carbon has already been pumped into the atmosphere and how deep in we are, technologies that produce clean energy and draw down atmospheric carbon will be absolutely critical. It's not technology that's the problem. It's the imaginary that turns to technology to patch up a broken world while keeping intact the pathological relationships with the earth, as well as the systems of injustice, inequality, violence and extraction that broke that world. Part of the challenge of creating better, more helpful imaginaries is facing up together to the truths about the world that we would rather not face. This includes the violence that has been inflicted and the dimensions of climate change that are already locked into the future. Perhaps it's because my home is South East Australia and I lived through the catastrophic Black Summer fires of 2019-2020 
but I have no tolerance for tranquilizing illusions and I'd like us to move past those illusions together. What we do want to do is invite you to be alive to the space between the damage that is locked into our futures and the actual futures that are yet to unfold. This is the space of possibility. It's also the space of collective responsibility. No doubt, we all have to put pressure on governments and corporations that are driving us to intolerable futures and demand that they change their course. But our focus in this podcast has been elsewhere because it will also be communities acting together that will determine what that space between what has to be the case and what could be the case will look and feel like. So what can you do? Well, the answer to that question will depend on where you are, who you're connected with, and what paths can be forged in the place you call home. We hope we've conveyed how place-based collective action on climate change is. But place, like Gondwanaland, is not just one thing. In one sense, place is very particular and very local. If you live in a small town, you could find out what's happening with local growers, support them, or even become one. If you live in an urban centre, you might get involved in community-based renewable energy schemes, working out how folks can pool their resources to ensure that everyone can transition away from fossil fuel-driven energy systems. You can become part of land, forest or coastal regeneration projects, attending to the places that matter to you. Or you might form or join an organisation to provide space for people to talk about how they feel about climate change so they can come to a place of working out how to act. Find out what's happening where you live and amongst the groups you are or could be connected with. Give yourself a chance to experience how collective action fosters more collective action and how action nurtures imagination. And then there is the place that stretched across all of these particular places. As we heard time and again, local collective actions that are creating safer and healthier forms of life can only sustain themselves if larger social, political and economic systems support them. So long as international, national and local economies subsidise extractive ways of producing food and energy and the corporations that benefit from them, the people who are building alternatives will be running up the steepest of hills. So long as international, national and local political systems pass laws and policies that smooth the path for the Amazons of the world, and I don't mean the rainforest, folks wanting to build and nurture markets attentive to humans and the earth will have to spend untold energy carving a place for themselves. And so long as dominant social and cultural systems hold the earth and other earth beings as resource to be extracted, the folks who hold them as life will spend their time 
holding back the forces of violence and destruction. So while you're finding out and becoming part of what's happening in the specific places where you live, you can also play your part as a member of the larger collectives you belong to, your city, your local government area, your state, your nation. Other political figures who represent you sponsoring economic and legal systems that create the conditions for transformative action? Or are they getting in the way? Are they assuring you that the future will be business as usual or promising you a techno fix so you can fall back asleep and accept the status quo of extraction and injustice? Or are they supporting you and the people around you to think and act realistically and imaginatively? Are they creating cultural and educational policies that help us come to terms with the changes that are happening in our worlds? Our intention in setting out this palette of action is not to overwhelm you. It's to join with you and to light up a path so you can join with the folks who have populated this podcast series. Of course, amongst the people listening to this podcast, there will no doubt be some who are already part of other grounded imaginaries. We've told you about some of the ones we've been finding out about, and now we would love to know about the ones you're involved with or the ones you want to be involved with. So to do this, please follow us on Instagram at grounded underscore imaginaries and reach out to us via the contact details in the episode show notes. The links to the show notes can be found in the episode's description. Help us share this podcast series far and wide to inspire communities in all pockets of the world facing the reality of climate change and allowing us, through our collective actions, to know that alternative futures are possible. This podcast was produced by the Grounded Imaginaries Research Project funded by the V. Khan Rasmussen Foundation. The project partners are the Sydney Environment Institute, the Social Entrepreneurship Association, Oroville, and India and Bharat together. Thank you for joining us and goodbye.